everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about the Parsha. Our episodes in the Book of Rishit focus on family and interpersonal dynamics. These conversations are candid, insightful, and respectful. We aim not to psychoanalyze the biblical figures, but to learn from them as we stumble through our own beautifully messy lives. It's not too late to register for yearly classes at Matan. Check out the website and social media platforms for all relevant information. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Parshat Vayera opens with Sarah's receival of the news of Yitzchak's future birth. It is the first revelatory stop on the travel route of the three messengers of God, after which they continue to Sodom to deliver God's punishment and save Lot and his family. Avraham then engages in a divine debate, arguing with God's attribute of judgment. It is a monumental passage reminding us that the job of a righteous person is to oppose that which seems unjust. While we may not always prevail, there is change invoked in the world when people protest in the name of morality. We then read the second She's Really My Sister story, a tactic Avraham repeats upon reaching Gerar. And then Yitzchak is born, and we are thrown into a whirlwind of narratives. His youth is complicated by the presence of Ishmael, who gets thrown out of Avraham's house with his mother Hagar. It is a strikingly similar, yet somewhat different story than the one told in chapter 16, which takes place before Sarah as a mother. There is a brief reprieve to discuss stolen wells, and Avraham flexes his muscles as arbitrator, creating an alliance with Avimelech and his army chief. Right after this, God commands Avraham to sacrifice his son. This will be the focus of today's conversation. The Parsha closes with a recording of Nahor's descendants, both from his wife Milka, briefly mentioned at the end of chapter 11, and the children born to his concubine. This seems to function as a hopeful epilogue to the Akedah story, letting us know that Yitzchak will emerge from this episode and marry Rivka, who descends from the line of Nahor. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Tanya White to speak about the philosophical and familial implications of the Akedah story. Dr. Tanya White is an international lecturer, writer, and educator with a focus on Tanakh and contemporary Jewish thought. She is a senior lecturer at Matan's Women Institute for Torah Study and teaches at other institutions, including Pardes and LSJS. Tanya holds a doctorate in Jewish philosophy from Berlin University and is a recipient of the Shoup Fellowship for Outstanding Students. A collection of her articles, blogs, and published material can be viewed on her blog page, www.tanyawhite.org. Tanya, uh, most importantly, you did not mention that you're my friend in your bio. Um, <laughs> I should. I should have that. <laughs> I joke. Tanya, it is great to have you back here on the podcast. Thanks for agreeing to come back. I have to hold back from having you every other episode. So. <laughs> it's great to be back with you, Yosefa. <gasps> Always a pleasure. Okay. So, you know, when I asked you to participate in the Brayshit series on family, you said to me, would it be too ambitious to talk about the Akedah? And I said, I don't think there's anyone better to talk about it. So so let's jump into that episode. I, I agree that there's so many laden, complex, layered stories that we have in each of these parshiot, and there's something kind of agonizing about having to choose one. But I think that speaking about the story of the Akedah from both the Tanakh and philosophical and familial lens is an imperative. So take us into that 
that story wherever feels right for you today? So I feel like it's the kind of story that on the one hand impels us to interpret it, to look at it, to analyze, to be provoked, to, you know, and on the other hand, it kind of, it almost mandates us to be silent. It's like, in a sense, I see Abraham's silence and the silence that we hear, or we hear so resounding in the text as he walks up the mountain. I almost feel like that in itself is a mandate to the reader that what can one say about this episode? You know, what can one even speak about with authority about such a perplexing, paradoxical narrative in the text? And yet at the same time, because it is so challenging and so difficult. It's almost as if the text is inviting us as the reader, almost mandating us to interpret it. And it's that kind of dialectical tension that exists between on the one hand, the silence that we feel when we read it, that are, the only way to relate to it is to just remain silent. And on the other hand, knowing that we actually just can't remain silent on it and we need to scream and shout and try and understand it. That to me is what makes the narrative so enticing. So I'm going to jump straight in. I kind of want to take that okay down. I want to say something which I think is supremely important when reading it. I think that in order to really understand the narrative, it has to be viewed in the wider, broader perspective of the Abraham narratives generally and see it in the context of all the previous challenges that he's been through and understand that this is the kind of the climax, the pinnacle, the final step, right, in this very difficult and as I said to you at the beginning, very messy matrix that Abraham is constantly trying to navigate between his particular ties and feelings and relationship to his family and the more, I don't know if I call it universal, but the more divinely oriented or divinely mandated covenantal way. Meaning on the one hand, he has his family, he has what all human beings have, right? Your particular sentiments towards those that are closest to you and those that you self-interest to a degree self-interest and my self-interest is to protect my family my self-interest is to ensure that my family survives that my seed survives that my family is the most important thing in my being that my wife that my spouse that my children that I feel my deep attachment to these people and yet everyone also, all of us, all human beings, whether they're Jewish or not Jewish, I would like to believe, yes, I'd like to think I'm in an ideal world. All human beings have, have goals, have principles, have values that transcend their self-interest, that transcend their family connections or their particular lives or whatever it happens to be. And we all in some senses, every human being, I think even more particularly Jewish, the Jewish people and Jews, we're always managing that very, very difficult tie between the two. I'll give you, I'll just give you a really classic example, Yosefa, which I find super fascinating as a historical development. If we look, I mean, mm -hmm. just look at Fiddle on the Roof as an example, right? Fiddle on the Roof, you have, um, what's the name of the main character? It's gone out of my head. Tevia. Tevia, thank you. You have Tevia, <laughs> who we see has a very, very strong sense of his Jewish roots, of his Jewish identity, of the man, of the divine mandate that you have to maintain 
your the character of the Jewish people, which is you know traditional orthodoxy. I mean, at the time it wasn't called orthodoxy; it was before the Enlightenment had impacted them. But you know the traditional ways. And what happens is his daughter, or one or two of his daughters, one specifically, leaves that, marries out, and for Tevya, there is a total cut. He has for him the principle of the Jewish, you know, mandate not to marry out and not to assimilate comes way before. Or, or supersedes his particular connection to his daughter and he cuts her off. But for the mother, it's much more difficult as we see and we see the tension. I would say now in our modern world, you know, I'm going to say things here that may be a little bit uncomfortable, but I see this from not just assimilation. You know, all these different manifestations that we're seeing where our children are not necessarily following exactly the path that we or the principles that we have adhered to or the principles that are important to us in terms of Jewish continuity, in terms of our Jewish principles, even in terms of being religious and non-religious. You know, in even 100, 200 years ago, your child wasn't religious. They were left out the fold. You kind of disconnected to them. There was a disengagement. Nowadays, that is really not the case. And we're seeing an even a very strong embrace and um, unconditional love towards our children, even if they are not choosing the path or the principles or the values or whatever it happens to be that we believe in. And I think that there's been some kind of transformation that's happened. Now, again, I, there's no, I'm not saying what is right or wrong. I, and I think that's exactly the point, Yosefa. I think that every generation chooses of when you're balancing these two things out, every generation, according to what is going on, according to what all the different value systems they're weighing up, according to what's the situation in that generation, chooses where to place the emphasis. And I think for Avraham, his entire life narrative is about one where he is constantly balancing that very, very narrow bridge, that very narrow path between familial ties, familial loyalty, familial love, and the knowledge that he is carrying the covenantal path, that he is the torchbearer of the covenantal mission. But so with that thought in mind, and whew, I have a lot of thoughts in response. We'll <laughs> I'm see sure if we you get do. To them. You look at the Akedah narrative, and you don't really see any overt hesitation on the part of Avraham. You see some subtle hesitations, by the way, in some of the ways they stop. And there's, you no, know, no, that's a, that's I a different see, episode I see of close massive, reading. No, my reading is that I see massive You see, you see hesitation yeah, on Avraham's 100%. part. You know, the word Hineni that keeps coming up to me echoes Avraham's state of mind as he was climbing up the mountain. I see the fact that Avraham hardly speaks, right? The fact that Avraham basically responds to God by saying Hineni, one short word, and responds to, to, we'll talk in a minute, to Yitzchak, also by saying Hineni, one short word. And besides that, he says a few words to them, you stay here, right? And we'll go up the mountain to the, to the people that help the, to his helpers. To me, in my mind, that is somebody, and we know Avraham knows how to use words. Only a few chapters earlier, mm -hmm. he was arguing with God about yeah. Stom. Okay, this isn't someone that can't argue. To my mind, that shows the antipathy that he has towards the mission. He is walking that mountain because when we are uncertain, we still have to climb the mountain. When we are unsure, we still have to remain in the ritualistic moments of getting up in the morning and davening and remaining, you know, the, the korban tamid, to remain in those moments of continuing and continuing. And it doesn't, it doesn't alleviate the doubt. It doesn't make it easier, but it allows us to still remain within the framework of what it is to be a human being in relationship with God, 
But, and to me, this is the moment, that Hineni call is the antipathy. And where do I see it? So I saw the most incredible, incredible article by Rav Benny Lau. It's actually in a, a fascinating book called Akedat Yitzchak Lizar'ah. It was a book of essays that were put together in memory of someone who died at one point, I think, in battle. And it's a Hebrew book. And in the book, he writes an article and he says that Avraham is being pulled between the two Hinanis. He's being called, the only time he says Hineni, the first is to God. Yes, God, Hineni, I am here. I am listening. I understand that this is the divine call and this is the divine mission at this moment. And when Yitzchak, they're climbing up the mountain and Yitzchak turns around to him, right? And he says to him, he says to him, um, Avi, and he turns around, he says, Hineni, Bni, I'm here, my son, right? And he asks him, where is the, where is the Selola? Like, where, what, how, what are we going to sacrifice? And he says, Hashem, you are said, God, Bni, God will, God will show me the where the sacrifice is going to be. But to me, the, what, uh, what, what Rav Benny Lau speaks about is the, 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 the tension, the pull between the Hineni to God and the Hineni Bni, that he says to Yitzchak. And if we take, as I said to you, if we see this narrative, not as the beginning, but the end of that journey that Abraham's been taking, it makes a lot of sense. If I just go through with you, Yosefa, just three or four examples. Lech Lecha, his first call, where he hears this voice or whatever it happens to be that tells him Leave your home, the house, and the house of your father to this land that I will show you. First and foremost, this again is a choice between familial ties, familial certainty, familial home, and the mission of God, the call of God, the covenantal path. Okay? In that circumstance, what does Abraham choose? He chooses the covenantal path. He takes with him Sarah, his wife, and he takes with him Lot, but he leaves his father's household behind. Okay, the second one is the tension I know you spoke about last week between Lot and the covenantal destiny. And it's very, very interesting because our focus is that, okay, that's, I'm not going to get into each individual narrative here, but I just want to show how Lot for Abraham is his tie to his family. It's his brother's son. It's some, somebody he clearly loves and feels loyalty towards. And at that moment, Lot's in a, in, a, in a pickle. And we have the battle of the four and five kings. And Abraham puts his life on the line to go and save his nephew. Now, we're not mm -hmm. told again whether or not that was the right thing to do. There's no divine voice that comes out. But at that moment, and don't forget, we all see Abraham speaks to God. God speaks to Abraham. But actually, how many times does God directly speak to Abraham in his lifetime? In many situations, Abraham had to be the protagonist of his own destiny. He had to be the one that had to make choices without God telling him what to do. And for example, in that specific example, he had to weigh up. On the one hand, God has promised to you know, that I'm going to be the covenantal, uh, that, my, that, that my progeny is going to be the covenantal way. So he doesn't know if his progeny is Lot or isn't. And here he puts his life on the line to go and save his nephew. Now, is he doing that because he loves his nephew? Or is he doing that because he feels that this is the divine mission and he has to save the progeny? We don't know. The text is very ambiguous. We don't know what his intentions are. We don't know why he's doing it. But again, what we're seeing, the same thing. His family, his ties, his love of his family versus the covenantal mission. Why does he go into war? We're not sure. 
it's unsure. But we see at the end that Lot is not chosen. Okay. Then we have the very disturbing episode, and and I, you know, even in our modern minds, it's disturbing. But even I think for the ancient commentators, and a lot of them are very, very critical of Abraham, it's still disturbing even for the ancient commentators when Abraham goes down to Egypt, and he essentially puts his life ahead of the life of his wife. So when Sarah and Abraham go down to Egypt, Abraham chooses to put his life, which is essentially the covenantal mission, ahead of the life of his wife, Sarah. He pretends that Sarah is his wife, knowing that she's going to be taken, knowing that she's going to be, um, you know, taken to the king and, and essentially have sexual relations with, not with him. You know, the king is, is going to force him and, and that's the way it's going to be. And again, we ask the question, did he make the right call? Now, there's a lot to say here. And I think that a lot of the narrative that we see later where Sarah calls Hagal, Hagal Hamitsri, and it comes up again and again. I mean, in my mind, that is very much referring back to that time in, in Egypt where, where Sarah is perhaps maybe there's a certain bitterness towards Abraham that I know that they chose perhaps to do it together and, and Abraham and she knew about it before they went. But very often we make decisions or we agree to something and then once they actually materialize and come, it, it's much more difficult to swallow. And I think that, again, we don't know if it was the right or the wrong call. And as I said to you, some of the commentators are particularly critical of Abraham at that moment. Did he choose the right, did he choose by choosing God's path and his survival? Was that the right call? Or should he have ethically and morally been loyal to his wife and understand and empathetic towards what she would go through? Then we have again the story of Yishmael, Yishmael and Hagal, and Abraham does not want them to go into exile. He does not want them to, to leave. And he says that to Sarah. He chooses this time round. He may, maybe he saw how he had made a mistake in Egypt. And again, by the way, in Graal, when he goes to Avimelech, maybe he understood that he made a mistake. And this time he says, no. This time, I'm not going to make the same mistake. I'm choosing my family over the voice of my wife. This time, I, my family, my son is important. And then God turns around to him and says, listen to the voice of your wife. This time, God intervenes and says to him, you need to be choosing the covenantal path, Yitzchak, and his survival over the feelings you have towards your son, Yishmael and Hagal. And finally, after all of that, we get to the story of Yitzchak and the Akedah. And once again here, we see the tension between the love of son and maybe the self-interest and the greater mission of God, what God wants Abraham to do. But the irony here, and this is the key, the irony here is that as opposed to the other, in the other circumstances, there was always a self-interest versus God's mission. Here they're wrapped up into one. Here it seems to be that the survival of his own destiny of the covenantal mission is also asking to be sacrificed. God is saying to him, not only am I asking you to listen to my voice and to listen to the covenantal destiny, I'm actually asking you, Abraham, to kind of self-sacrifice and sacrifice the covenantal mission by killing your, your, your son. And that's why I think this is the most confusing task for Abraham. And it's the most difficult. Um, 
I, I, I have a few um, ways that I would perhaps respond to them, but we don't have enough time to unpack each of them individually. And I know you want to respond, Yosefa. First of all, I think it's a fascinating way to go through all those narratives. I, I honestly have never heard them looked at that way. And I think that there's obviously so much to say about each of those examples. But Dafka, when I look at the story of Nakeda, I agree that the conflict comes to its greatest height here because both listening to God is wrapped up, as you said, with the with the personal and the covenantal yeah. become one in this example. Correct. However, what you have here that you don't have in any other narrative to also call back that failure on the roof example is that here Avraham is able in the end to achieve both. Meaning in the end, Avraham achieves both because he both listens to God, but God doesn't make him go through with it. So he both demonstrates his loyalty because he has no idea that God's going to recall the the commandment, but he also gets to preserve his son, who is both obviously who he loves and also going to be the fulfillment of the covenantal promise. So Dafka, in this narrative, which I which is the most complex, we see that you're able to do both. And, and just to continue that thought one more step, which is that I think one of the greatest differences between let's say, pre-modern thought, and we'll use again, fairly on the roof as our example, well, you have to choose. They're yeah. either in or out, yeah. right? They either stay or they mm-hmm. have to go. Mm-hmm. The, I think the biggest difference is that in the, in the challenges that people present today within the family structure, within the religious family fabric, we don't necessarily feel anymore that we have to make either or choices. Yeah. We're discovering that also psychologically, perhaps the most sound way to keep a family still together is to find somewhere in between that, well, my child isn't going along that path that I had envisioned, but you know what? Maybe they're making certain choices about their life or feel they have to live a certain way, but they themselves don't want to get rid of the baby with the bathwater. So we live in a time where our thinking and our religious fabric, I think, has progressed enough that we don't have to make such stark choices anymore. And we can we can find some sort of middle ground where we can live in a way that both keeps people in and keeps us devoted to our family. And I think that that might be the paradigm that the Akedah story has to offer us. Yosefa, I promise you, for those listening, Yosefa and I did not discuss this before. I sent her three or four points. And <laughs> we were going freestyle. I didn't know what you were going to say. My did not discuss it. And this is why we're friends, right? <laughs> because she literally took the words <laughs> out of my mouth. Um, I think what you're saying is, is 100% right. And again, it's way beyond the scope of just this um, podcast to be able to develop my idea Maybe, Yosefa, you, I wrote an article a while ago on the Times of Israel that develops this idea of the Akedah as the idea of the development of Yirat Elohim. And in my mind, that's really kind of the key to unpacking the Akedah is what God says to Abraham at the end, ki ati adati ki Yirat Elohim ata, now I know that you're God-fearing. And if we look at the very preceding story, which is the story of Avimelech and Graal, where Abraham says to him, you know, I didn't tell you she was my sister because there's no Yerat Elohim. And if we look at all the other places where we see Yerat Elohim, we see it as a very deep moral, universal moral and ethical conscious code, a code of consciousness, right? Which is like a, this very universal moral, ethical way of of human na- of human beings without having a need for divine authority or religiousness or whatever it happens to be. And I see the Akedah as the div- of God turning around to Abraham and saying, now I know that Deep within yourself, you don't only listen to the external command of God, which you did because you climbed up the mountain, 
but you also are able to listen to your inner moral conscience. Because if we think about it right at the end, you, I don't 100% agree with everything you said, because I think actually... Abraham's very uncertain, and, and there's a beautiful thing in uh, the Kabbalah. They talk about the idea that the, the command that Abraham heard in the Akedah was the, like through a dim glass. It wasn't as clear a command as Lechacha and, and anything else. Abraham was very uncertain, and he climbs up the mountain. But ultimately, what, what makes him the hero of the story, in my mind, is that he hears the voice of the Malach Hashem. Now, why would he adhere to a voice of a malach that tells him not to kill his son when the original voice was God's that told him, do kill your son? And the reason in my mind is that Abraham is open to all possibilities, that he knows that something here is not sitting comfortable. And yet he still climbs because that's what we do as religious people. And he, but he is constantly open to hearing other possibilities, other responses. And that's why not only does he hear the voice of the malach, but he lifts his eyes and he sees the ayal, which is, is caught in the thicket, right? The ram that's caught in the thicket. He wouldn't have seen that ram had he not had his eyes, li- uh, uh, as it says, right? He lifted up his eyes. His eyes were lifted up. And I think that in a sense, the Akedah acts exactly as you said. And in our generation, I think the, one of the beauties of postmodernism, and there's many, many, many negatives and many ills to the, to, to the postmodernist outlook. However, I think one thing that postmodernism has brought to us is the ability to look at endless possibilities, to look at different paradigms, to be able to shift paradigm, to know that maybe there isn't only one way of seeing things. And to a degree, when I think about this idea of navigating a path between all the divine will and the divine mission and the divine voice, all our human na- human ethics or, or, or humanitarian uh, morality or whatever you want to call it, maybe it doesn't have to be one or the other. Maybe the beauty is that we should be open to hearing all the voices. Maybe we shouldn't have certitude in one particular paradigm or one particular position, but what, what I think this generation needs to do is to win back curiosity. I think one of the, the problems says that people are, we are all living, and, and certainly in America, even more so than here in Israel, but it's definitely coming here, is the polarization of society. We live in echo chambers of social media. We only hear our own positions. And one of the keys to um, remedying that situation is to be curious. And I think that in a sense, what Avraham, who, what Avraham represents he represents curiosity. He represents the ability to be open at all moments. He can either be fighting for storm or he can be listening unconditionally to the voice of God, but he's always open to the other paradigm. We don't know how the story is going to end and neither does Abraham. And the beauty of him is that he's open to, 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 to listening and to seeing the different possibilities of an ending. And I'll just finish, Yosefa, with I think some of the most beautiful commentaries on the Akedah happen to be the commentaries from the Hasidic dynasty, the Sfat Emet, the Imre Emet, and they all speak about this idea of, of the challenge of the Akedah was that Avraham had to go with the deepest, most profound, strongest love ever that he had for Yitzhak, meaning every time Hashem said to him, Lech, um, it, it says to him, Kach epincha every time he makes it greater and greater, the love that Abraham feels for Yitzhak becomes greater and greater. And Dafka, what the, the Hasidic commentators say is that the greatness of Abraham was that he didn't detach the ethical 
from the divine command. On the contrary, and the, in even the Midrashim that talk about the idea that why did Yitzhak go blind? Because the dro- teardrops of the Malachim dropped into his eyes. If we take that Midrash, then where was, when Abraham was about to put a knife in his son, was, did he turn Yitzhak around or was Yitzhak facing him? And the answer is, according to that Midrash, Yitzhak was facing him. And if we go according to the Chazitzidic commentaries, it makes 100% sense because he felt such a great love for his son. Even at the moment where he was about to sacrifice him, he had him eye to eye with him. He never let him go. Shnehem nahalchul yachdav. Twice it says some, they go together. There was such a deep connection that he did not let go. Unlike Hagar, where in the Midbar, when Yishmael is crying, she turns connector, she turns away from him. She detaches the ethical from the fate, right? What's going to be, what, what God's gzera is. Here, Abraham says, okay, this might be the gzera. This might be the way the story is going to end, but I am not letting go of my love for my son. I am going with that love and I'm going to do what God tells me to do. And in the end, because he's open to different possibilities, he's able to hear the voice, not of God, the voice of the angel and to lift his eyes up and see the ram and know that that is a different ending and that maybe. Maybe with hindsight, what God asked him to do at the beginning wasn't what he was really meant to do. So it's, it's, there's, there's many different readings here. This is just one reading, but I think yeah, it, it so plays well. It's right. The lay, the there's so many layers. Obviously, I said to you, it was a challenge to, to even speak about Barkeda. And I, and I really come to it from a place of, I really, I mean this in the sense of deep humility of presenting this, this, you know, this way of looking at it because I, I don't know if it, it's, right, wrong, who knows? But I think that it deserves to be really, like kind of really unpacked. And this is just kind of my way of unpacking it. And I'm relying here also on Rav Ben Lano and, 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 and traditional commentaries and Hasidic commentaries, and I'm trying to tie them all in together. Again, I, I come to it really from a place of humility. And I say to yourself, uh, I don't know if it is a genuinely, um, if it sits comfortably as an interpretation but for me personally to see it within the greater um more holistic context of the abrahamic narratives i think is very very important whether or not you like what i said or i didn't say i think irrelevant of that i think if we're going to analyze it it has to be analyzed not just as a singular narrative but as something much more holistic and part of the whole beration narrative uh, of family basically which is exactly the theme you've chosen Yes, I think just to to wrap this conversation up, which is that to me the biggest takeaway I've I've had from this conversation is is that piece is seeing Abraham's every step as his covenantal his covenantal promises pitted against family, or we can say you know ethics versus versus personal. We could define it in all different ways. That yeah. that to me is is a totally different way of looking at the at the Abraham stories. And it's interesting. There, are, there are many, many people who say that in many different ways. Um, you can also say it as how does one sort of balance your awareness of being part of a divine plan versus living on a human plane? Like that. That's another way yeah. that others introduce this kind of tension that speak about it. But I think that really noticing that theme, the theme of him constantly being pitted against his family, but that Avram also makes different choices. They replace that yeah. God almost never tells him what to do, yeah. which brings us back to this piece of Sefer Breshit constantly presents us with examples that sometimes hit the mark and sometimes don't hit the mark. And I think that also what you really emphasized in the Akedah narrative 
is the lack of knowing whether Abraham did was what was right, right? Or when did God command hoping that Abraham might say no? Meaning we that we have opened up all these possibilities of reading this. You know, when, when you read it and you're younger, you say, wow, God said something. Abraham did it. You learn about the, you know, the 10 or 11 tests that, that Abraham had, and he did it and he accomplished it. And so you don't ever ask that question of, did God intend for Avram to answer? Should Avraham had yeah. had refused? That, like it opens up another sort of labyrinth of possibilities of how this could have gone. And that piece about remaining open and curious at the end is is also a really interesting piece. Meaning, did God intend Avraham to not continue? Meaning it's it seems yes, because he affirms his choice to not sacrifice his son when he swaps him out for for the animal. But this could have developed in a number of different ways, this story. And we're not sure at the outset what, what's going to happen at the end. And I think that that those are all really powerful ways even just to approach both the cycle of the Avram stories and also the Akedah story itself. It's not just the the dichotomous question of, is it ethical? Is it divine ethics versus human ethics? And yeah. what's supposed to be supreme? Something about that reading that's always it's sort of, I don't know, it doesn't it doesn't invite me in so much as a, as a learner. But opening up these questions of what did God have in mind or what did Avram have in mind on each side, to me, sort of opens up a whole a whole array of such richer ways to, to read this story. I want to so just I, add I really a very short that. epilogue, uh, Yosefa, which I'm going to leave as an open question for the listener. Sarah dies as a result of the Akedah. It's very clear that she dies as a result of the yeah. Akedah. Sarah, as opposed to Avraham, I think is a far more um, black and white personality. She sees the world in far more binary way than Avraham does. And we see, we see it in a numerous occasions. Um, and, you know, even just, she's very clear. She's got an insane amount of clarity. And she, there's an amazing Midrash and Aviva Zornberg develops it beautifully in her book where the Satan comes and basically tells her that, that Yitzhak's died. And she can't, she can't even fathom it. And she dies at that moment because for her, the world is so black and white and things are so, have to be so clear that to live in that moment of uncertainty, to live with that, as we said, like opening up of so many different possibilities, um, the end of the story not coming, she can't live in that moment. And, and so she dies because death is the obvious outcome or offshoot of, of, of having to live in a gray zone when you're a very, very black and white person. It's the same as Yona, you know, that asked to die, etc. Certain personalities, and, and Sarah's very much that, but th that's how I see it. And that's why for me, the Akedai is really this idea of the ability to paradigm shift, which to an extent, Sarah, um, and, and, and Sarah needed to be black and white because she had to create that balance to Abraham, but Sarah can't function. She can't live in that zone. Wow. Okay. Well, that's leaving us obviously with another, another large nugget yeah. to, to think about. Uh, and I'll just add, and here we'll really end, which is that a whole nother uh, path that we didn't go down now is to think about how this episode impacts Yitzhak's life um, yeah. and how being part of this episode or being the subject of mm -hmm. this tension between the divine and the, and the, and the human ethical, or again, however, we're going to pit those different values that that is another, another thing to think about and to think about how we see it resonating in Yitzhak's life later on. But for today, Tanya, I'm going to thank you for this conversation, as always. Thank you. Uh, opening up our, our minds and our hearts. And, uh, and we are definitely going home with a tremendous amount to, to think about and, and speak about over our Shabbat table. So thank you so much. Thank you, Yosefa. 
I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.